Welcome to the Antioch Podcast. We're a justice-minded Christian church in beautiful Bend, Oregon, seeking and celebrating the reconciliation of all things. May the word of Christ dwell in you fully and give you peace. As we move from gathering to listening, our scripture reading today is from the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 6, verses 12 through 20. I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say, food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You are bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hello friends, my name is Sean, I'm one of the pastors on our team here, and my first ever sermon at Antioch was in 2020, and it was digital. I was preaching to a camera, so this feels like some sort of sick, full-circle joke that I'm having to do this again, but we are sad not to be with you this morning, but we look forward to seeing you soon, so stay safe. Uh, to begin, I would just like to ask all of the skiers and snowboarders who have been praying for more snow know these past few weeks uh, to stop. Uh, your prayers have been answered. Uh, it is time to move on. My back is still recovering from all of this shoveling. So it's also cold right now, really, really cold. So uh, use your powers elsewhere, direct them to good, world peace, one of your sports teams, whatever it is. As I briefly mentioned last week when Michelle Jones was here, we have entered into a new season in the church calendar. If you weren't here for that brief explainer, Epiphany can refer uh, to this entire season as well as the Feast of Epiphany. For the season, it refers to the time between the season of Christmas, which looked strange this year with the way the calendar fell, and it stretches all the way until the beginning of Lent, which, uh, if you are counting, the beginning of Lent, Ash Wednesday, is actually one month from today, so it's super early this year. Anyway, this word epiphany means to manifest, to make known, or even to reveal. And after we experience the 12 days of Christmas, the Feast of Epiphany happens, where we commemorate the Magi bringing the gifts to the newborn Messiah that made known and revealed that Jesus was the long-awaited Christ. 
On the Sundays after that initial feast or day of Epiphany, we mark other experiences in the life of Jesus that reveal to us who he is, that demonstrate his power, that show his authority, and ultimately make known his love. Traditionally, on the first Sunday after Epiphany, the first of these revealing and manifesting moments is marked with the baptism of Jesus, which we heard Michelle talk about last week. Ultimately, what we see is this. Epiphany is the church season in which God's light is revealed in the world, when glory is made manifest. And so the spiritual flow of these winter seasons goes like this. In Advent, we are waiting for the light in the midst of the darkness. In Christmas, we see the light overcoming darkness. And in Epiphany, we follow that light to its glorious source. The story moves from flickering candlelight to the light of the cradle to seekers welcomed into the widening circle of light. So that's where we are now, and that's where we are headed for the next couple weeks. As you heard from our text today, we are in the book of 1 Corinthians, and we'll be camping out in 1 and 2 Corinthians for the remainder of Epiphany until we get to Lent. So uh, always when we start a new book, we like to give a little bit of background, and Corinth as a city was in a prime location. It was 50 miles due west of Athens and sat at the hub of a popular road network on a narrow strip of land connecting the southern peninsula of Greece, known as the Peloponnese, with mainland Greece to the north. If all roads led, if all roads led to Rome, a good number of them passed through Corinth. While it wasn't on the water itself, it was on a narrow isthmus that was between the Ionian Sea and the Aegean Sea making an important city that controlled these shipping lanes and trade routes. If you are a visual learner, we can put a map up on the screen for you. Uh, historically, as a city, it was destroyed by the Romans in 146 BC, but it was rebuilt a century later, and during Paul's time, which is about a century after that, it was a thriving metropolis of about 250,000 people, most likely. One of its key features is the Acro-Corinth, uh, this is a mountain where the city surrounds it. And on top of this mountain was a fortress and in ancient times the temple of Aphrodite, the goddess of love. Basically, anywhere you could go in Corinth, you would see the Acro-Corinth. We'll see in a bit why, we'll see in a bit later why this is important, but we're going to keep that in mind when we think about what Paul wrote to the Corinthian believers and why he wrote it. The book of Acts tells us that Paul moved to Corinth and was eventually joined by Silas and Timothy while he was there. For about a year and a half, Paul stayed with Priscilla and Aquila, most likely worked together with them in the Agora, and Paul helped build this community of believers, uh, but then he left and he wrote this letter that we know as 1 Corinthians while he was living in Ephesus. When we read a letter like this one, it is a bit like listening to one end of a phone conversation. Uh, this wasn't the first letter that Paul sent to the community in Corinth. Scholars tend to think there was at least one or more original letters that Paul had sent that have been lost to history. But while Paul was staying in Ephesus, he got a couple pieces of information that led him to write this letter we now know as 1 Corinthians. First, he got some news uh, from a group known as Chloe's people, as he refers to them in the letter. They were a group within the community, and they let him know about some of the specific challenges that were going on amidst their community. The second piece of information was a letter he received from some other Corinthian believers, another faction within the congregation detailing different and other challenges that were going on. 
So the things that Paul writes about here in 1 Corinthians are responses to this news that he has heard about what is going on in the community. He writes about division and factionalism. Again, we see these two differing groups telling him stories. He writes about incest. He writes about litigation and bringing lawsuits. He writes about freedom. He writes about fornication and sex. So from our end of the phone, we can presume that these were the issues that were brought to Paul's attention, and that is why he's addressing them and writing them in his letter now. That's the context for where we are at today. And so our text begins like this. I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I'll not be mastered by anything. So our passage today begins with what scholars think are two slogans used by many of the Corinthian believers. As you may have heard before, there weren't exactly quotation marks in our earlier manuscripts, but the opinion is that Paul is quoting these Corinthian believers back to themselves, things that they were saying, slogans that they had. Maybe this was in one of the reports that he had received. So we're going to take a look at them in turn. First one, I have the right to do anything. Basically, the Corinthian believers were saying, I am free to do whatever I want. Paul himself loved to talk about freedom. A consistent part of his gospel message, whether it was in these letters to the Corinthians or in Galatians or in other pieces that he wrote about, he always discussed the freedom that believers have in Christ. Who knows, maybe Paul even preached about this ultimate freedom when he was with the Corinthians last. But this Corinthian commitment to freedom, uh, so Paul may not have been totally against how much they valued their freedom, but he does think that they have taken it too far. You know, sometimes you can have too much of a good thing because this freedom that Paul talked to them about, this freedom that they have in Christ, it has been taken to its logical extreme. We'll see later on in our passage what the specifics of this look like. But these Corinthian believers had taken their freedom as Christians to mean that they were free of all rules governing their behavior. I have the right to do anything had become their slogan used to justify any and all kinds of behavior. They didn't know what to do with all this freedom that they'd been given. I think back to when I started college, I had a roommate who grew up in a very strict household. But now that he was at college, he had some distance from his parents, was experiencing some freedom, I believe that he was taking on the slogan, I have the right to do anything as well. Skipping class, playing video games all night, these are the things that I can mention, but he didn't quite understand what to do with all of this newfound freedom. He didn't know what it meant to be an independent person. And Paul takes this idea and this slogan of theirs, and the slogan of theirs, and he adds two qualifiers. First, sure, you do have the right to do anything, but not everything is beneficial. Second, he adds, but I will not be mastered by anything. For Paul, freedom did not mean that they could choose to do whatever they wanted without consequences. Instead, their freedom came from belonging to Christ. The standard used for decision-making is not what is permitted, but the standard is actually what is beneficial to other people. It wasn't just limited to what was beneficial to them. It was what was beneficial to other people. Their understanding of freedom was misguided. And what Paul was trying to say is that their freedom is actually bound up with their fellow believers. 
that when freedom is misused, it actually can turn into slavery to desire. And that in his warning here to not be mastered by anything, because freedom quickly turns into control. So what did this look like for the Corinthian believers? Verse 13, Paul quotes another one of their slogans and says, You say, food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. So food was made to be eaten, digested in the stomach. The stomach was made to eat food and digest it. And for these Corinthians, they felt the same thing about the body and sex. Sex is for the body, and the body is made for sex. This is kind of the base level of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? Physiological needs. And for the Corinthians, they saw them as the same thing. They need to eat for energy. Sex is a physical act that the body needs. And this ultimate freedom that they were claiming now allowed them to participate in any sexual practice because it was just in their body. But Paul counters. He says, the body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? What Paul starts here is a theology of the body that will extend all the way into chapter 15 of this book. Part of what Paul was dealing with in these Corinthian believers was a strong duality between the physical and the spiritual, the body and the soul. They held this dualistic notion that God would destroy the body, as we heard in the slogan in verse 13, but also that God would save the spirit, that the body was bad, the spirit was good, that these two were completely separate from one another, so it didn't matter what one did with their body as long as their spirit was okay. If the body needs sex, that's okay. You can take it in any form or desire that you want because it is just a physical thing. It's a physiological need. It's not important like the spiritual stuff. But Paul continues. He says, Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with the prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with the prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said the two will become flesh, will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Apparently, one of the pieces of news that Paul heard on that phone conversation where we only hear one end is about some believers who have been using their freedom to visit prostitutes. This lined up with that duality we just spoke about, but it also has something to do with their location in Corinth. Like any major trade hub in ancient times, there was all sorts of illicit behavior. There was access to debauchery, but Corinth was unique in the sense of its history. We discussed that about anywhere you walked in Corinth, you could see the Acro-Corinth, that, that mountain that was there. Well, the temple to Aphrodite, the goddess of love on top of that, is traditionally understood to have an element of temple prostitution. So as these Corinthian believers were walking around Corinth, they were continually confronted with that reality every single day, that this mountain was always on the horizon, and that... There was sexual activity, temple prostitution that had happened there. And so Paul confronts it head on. But he doesn't just tell them not to do something. He paints a picture of how much their lives and bodies matter to God. 
He doesn't just give them a rule, but he asks them questions, and he probes them to get them to think in such a way that they will go on making right decisions in other areas of their lives as well. It's kind of the teach a man to fish idea. Paul doesn't tell them that sex is bad. He doesn't tell them that their bodies are bad. No, in fact, he tells them that they're good. They're so good that they need to be taken seriously and not flippantly. And the story that Paul tells is one centered on being united with Christ. Because that's where this all starts. This is the story for Paul, that the body is meant for the Lord. It's not just the spirit, it's not just the soul that are meant for the Lord. Verse 13 says the body is meant for the Lord. And this is a great reminder that this is a passage that is not strictly about sex. Paul wants to make it clear that our relationship with Jesus is as much physical as it is spiritual. That he wants to know us and work through us as fully physical human beings. That as Christians, we belong to Christ Jesus and we are a part of his body. We are a part of that body physically and spiritually. While its origins aren't entirely known, there's a phrase I love and it goes like this. It says, how you do anything is how you do everything. How you do anything is how you do everything. That if you are willing to cut corners in one area of your life, you'll probably do it elsewhere. If you're committed to doing things the right way with small things in your life, you'll probably do it when you're given bigger opportunities as well. For this passage, I think if we kind of translated that phrase as to what's going on here, it goes something like this. What you do with your body, you do with your whole self. What you do with your body, you do with your whole self. It isn't just one part of you that's separate from the important stuff. What we do to our bodies, we do to our whole self. If that is with sexual immorality, we can't just keep that as a physical thing that doesn't affect us spiritually because it affects our whole selves. As Paul says, you cannot belong simultaneously to a prostitute and to the Messiah. So in verse 18, he tells us to flee from sexual morality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. What Paul tells us is that our union with Christ is damaged by inappropriate unions of the flesh. That our choices around sex matter to our whole beings, our bodies, physical and spiritual. Today, I have shoveling on the mind, understandably. Again, we've been doing a lot of that. And I was out shoveling before coming here today. And I was actually thinking about uh, proper shoveling technique and how it relates to our passage today. As you've experienced here in Central Oregon, just about the worst thing that you can do when your driveway is covered in snow is to just drive over it, right? It makes it impossible to actually shovel or to scrape up. It turns into ice. It gets stuck like that for a long time until it really warms up. And I think when we devalue our sexual choices and are willing to compromise, it does the same thing for us. It won't matter if I just drive over this. It's no big deal. It won't matter if I make a questionable sexual choice or compromise myself this one time. It's no matter. It's no big deal. But it sticks with us. It influences our whole selves. It lasts with us because our bodies matter. But again, this passage isn't just about sex. Paul's developing a theology of the body, so it's much more than that. 
And just like those early Corinthian believers, our culture has a complex relationship with the body. You know, on the one hand, we can uh, glorify the body. We can make uh, the body the end-all, be-all, something uh, to be worshipped and admired. But on the other hand, uh, there's also this sense of shame around our bodies. That's why there are uh, so many products and surgeries and diets about how we can improve them, make them look better, spend money, because our bodies are inadequate. This complexity uh, is only magnified in church circles because we don't really know how to talk about our bodies. We don't feel comfortable talking about sex. But what we see here from Paul is that he tells the Corinthian believers and us today that what you do with your body matters. What you put in it, how you treat it, how you think about your body, whether you give it physical activity, what you eat, what you consume, what you do with it sexually. Paul says that just as God raised Jesus' body, he will raise ours also. He doesn't give us uh, much more to work on there. He doesn't fully extrapolate this idea. The resurrection of the body remains a mystery. We don't have the language to do justice, what it will finally mean. But what Paul says is there is some sort of continuity between our present bodies and our future ones. And over and over again, Paul is trying to emphasize that our bodies matter. What we do with them matters. And if Paul hasn't convinced them yet, he tries one final plea, one final connection to the bigger story. Verse 19. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. This is not the first time in this letter that Paul makes a connection between the body and the temple. He does so back in chapter 3. For the Jewish people, the temple was the meeting place with God. It was the very embodiment of his presence. So when Paul tells these believers that their bodies are temples, he is again elevating the value of the body. Rather than playing second fiddle to spiritual things, the body becomes an important conduit where we gain access to the very presence of God, where we can access the divine in our bodies that in our bodies lives the presence of the Holy Spirit. So much so that we are not our own, that we were bought with a high price in the death and the resurrection of Jesus. As temples of the Holy Spirit, we can't ever operate without God in us, but also we can't ever stop being someone who has been bought with a price. That each one of us has tremendous value to God, that he was willing to make the ultimate sacrifice for each one of us to bring us back into right relationship with him. Last week when we looked at Jesus' baptism, we heard those very famous words from God the Father. This is my son, the beloved with whom I am well pleased. One of the things I love about that encounter is we hear this from God before Jesus has really done anything. God didn't say, this is my son whom I'm well pleased because he has proven that he deserves it. He can turn water into wine. He likes to go off by himself and pray doesn't say any of these things. As far as we know, Jesus hasn't even done anything yet, and he was called the beloved. And it's the same thing for you and me. No matter our circumstances, no matter what we've done or what we haven't done, God calls us the beloved and has bought each one of us with a price, so much so that we are not our own. In fact, we belong to God, all of us, mind, body, soul. 
And I've been uh, trying to be judicious as I preach, and it's been a while since I quoted Wendell Berry, uh, but I'm going to have to bring him back for this discussion. And Wendell is a little bit more ornery than I am, but uh, listen to what he says here. He says, to despise the body or mistreat it for the sake of the soul is not just to burn one's house for the insurance, nor is it just self-hatred of the most deep and dangerous sort. It is yet another blasphemy. It is to make nothing and worse than nothing of the great something in which we live and move and have our being. What we see in Wendell's perspective is an echo of Paul's words that we have been bought with a price and the very being that paid our price dwells inside of us. And yet somehow we've been taught that our bodies are to be ignored or that they're somehow less than our spiritual selves or what we do with our bodies doesn't matter as long as we just accept Jesus into our heart. And so when we look back on this passage, to me there are a couple takeaways. And the first one is about freedom. Paul began this section by quoting the Corinthian phrase, I have the right to do anything, or basically I can do whatever I want. They were taking this idea of freedom as far as it could go. And here in America, we also love freedom. Many of our freedoms are outlined in the Bill of Rights. We're a country that is largely founded upon this idea of freedom, even if it wasn't for everyone to start. Well, there, We have all these discussions about freedom and our rights. And to be clear, so nobody emails me, I am pro-freedom, I am pro-liberty, justice for all. But sometimes we can be obsessed with this notion of freedom, that we have to defend our freedoms, we have to defend our rights at all costs. And I wonder if the Corinthian believers might have responded the same way that we do uh, when Paul called them out on this, talking about their rights and their freedoms when he began questioning their choices. Because what we see in Paul's discussion of freedom in our text that still rings true today is that Paul actually speaks of an oriented freedom. And what I mean by that is that Paul never just speaks of a freedom without bounds, but a freedom that depends on Jesus that as Christians, we belong to Christ. As temples of the Holy Spirit, he dwells in us. So when we think about freedom, it's not about what is permitted or not, what is legal or not, or what, even what rights I have. It is about my freedom being embodied in Christ so much so that I shift from focusing on my own rights and instead to my responsibility. My responsibility to live and move and act and vote and serve and insert what other verb you want is grounded in the reality of Christ. That I no longer make decisions on what is best for me, even though I may have that right or even my freedom tells me that I can do that, I am called to make decisions that are beneficial for others and that brings glory to God. That our lives become appropriately ordered when they are oriented by devotion to a good that extends beyond my own wants, needs, and preferences, and is oriented towards the larger reality of God and His glory. That if I am to be united with the Lord in body and spirit, my life should reflect that. In Christ, then, it is much less about freedom from, but freedom to. Freedom to live and freedom to love in the world in a way that is representative of Christ and his kingdom. Our freedom in Christ is not so that we can do whatever we want to do. We are set free so that we can do whatever God wants us to do to build his kingdom. And how do we do that? How do we live that out? How do we build God's kingdom? Well, we do it in our bodies. 
And our passage today both elevates our bodies and puts them in the proper place. Romans 12 tells us that we are to present our bodies to God as a living sacrifice. And how we treat and live and move in our bodies should point back to Christ and his kingdom. Because ultimately, this body is not mine. It is God's creation to be used for God's purposes. It is our job to steward these bodies as if they are temples. So for you, what would that look like? What do you need to change or do differently to reflect seeing your body as a temple? To know that it has been bought with a price and that your body is made for the Lord. In our passage today, Paul highlights sexual immorality as something to be wary of because of how it can negatively affect our bodies and our whole selves. Is there a change you need to make in your life to flee from sexual immorality? This matters whether you are single or married. Married people do not get a pass on this one because sure, sex is physical, but it's so much more than that. It's emotional, relational, and spiritual. It takes our whole selves. So how might you need to view sex differently today? Or is it something else about your body? Is it what you eat? Is it how much you eat, whether it's too little or too much? Is it what you drink, how much you sleep? Do you give your body physical activity? Or is it what you do with your body? Do you use it to physically embody Christ and to help others, or is it just your own? When talking about our bodies or even sex, I know a lot of what I heard uh, coming of age in evangelical circles was a list of things not to do or of rules to be followed, of every uh, young man or young woman's battle. Uh, But I wasn't told this story, the story that says our bodies are a gift from God and they are made for the Lord, that our bodies are united with Christ physically and spiritually, that we are temples of the Holy Spirit. And out of the fullness of that reality, not because of some lists of do's and don'ts, but the fullness of that reality, we can choose to live, to glorify and honor God with everything we do with and in our bodies. And here's the thing, maybe you've made some choices you regret with your body. Maybe in the past you've made some sexual decisions that you wish you could take back. Uh, Sheila Gregor, I think that's how you say her last name, she is an author who writes on the topic of Christian sexuality, and she co-authored a book recently called The Great Sex Rescue. It's a great uh, book, specifically for those of you who are married, And it corrects some questionable teaching uh, many of us have received uh, about sex here in the church. And it points to a better story around sex. But one thing that she says that I love is this. She says, your purity is not based on what you've done with your body. It's based on what Jesus did with his. Which is a great reminder for all of us because we have all fallen short. That Jesus meets us right where we are with grace and love. He has bought each of one of us with a price. Ultimately, in our passage today, we see Paul call the Corinthian believers and us to a higher calling. He elevates the physical. He elevates our body. He elevates our understanding of sex. He calls us to avoid separating our lives into the physical or the spiritual, but instead to unite them in pursuit of Christ, to recognize the presence of Christ inside us and to live differently because of it to flee from sexual immorality, to value the body for what it is, a temple that has been bought at a price. So much so that we honor God with our bodies in everything we do. So, Antioch family, may we be a people who embody the love and life of Christ in our very bodies, bringing his kingdom to earth spiritually and physically every single day. Amen.
Now, this is the time typically when we would normally invite you to the table. And I wish that we could do that, but we'll have to wait until we're back together next Sunday. But at the table is where we recognize the body and the blood of Christ, that Jesus was willing to give up his very body for you and me. So I want to encourage you to take a moment to commune with God in silence, to meditate on that idea, to take a few breaths and to breathe it in. And then in just a few moments, Cal will lead us in another song.